Welcome to the Slavic Connection. Today we have with us Dr. Bartholomew Sparrow. He is a professor in the UT government department. And we're speaking about his book from 2015, The Strategist, that is on former National Security Advisor Brent Scowcroft, who sadly passed away last week. A chief contribution of Scowcroft was his attention to the process about how you deal with and work with agency heads. We talked about General Scowcroft's legacy and some of the foreign policy decisions he made, spanning from the Ford era all the way to the Iraq War. This is a really fun conversation, and I hope you enjoy. I came in with a with a fairly specific notion of what to do, change our policy toward the Soviet Union. You're listening to the Slavic Connection, brought to you by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Dr. Sparrow, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So I was explaining offline that I picked up your book, having no idea you worked at UT. So this is an excellent coincidence. And I really enjoyed uh, The Strategist. It was a really great read. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. And so looking into your CV, I see a lot of work on World War II's effect on America, sort of American empire and political identity. Not a lot that would make me think uh, you would write a biography of someone like Brent Scowcroft. So how did you get to that as a subject? Yeah, well, <laughs> it's an interesting story. I was I was on my way to being promoted to full professor, and I was thinking about my next project, and there are a couple of things that I was interested in. One was the transition of the Cold War, which is what, what was I was under as a kid, and then kind of the interim period before the so-called War on Terror. And I was thinking, how do we get from a place of worrying about nuclear war, hiding under desks, about nuclear winter and so forth, to then a place of U.S. hegemony and, you know, the so-called unipolar moment, then back to a moment of, of fear and anxiety of the war on terror. And why did we, even though we sort of ruled the roost, why could the United States do more to shape the world in a way that was uh, protective of its interests and presumably those of other nations and peoples around the world. So it's interesting in this transition, this kind of long arc of American foreign policy. So that was one uh, prong. The other prong was I was curious about how the national security policymaking process worked because I'd studied, um, as you mentioned, I'd studied uh, sort of foreign policymaking during World War II, during the uh, Spanish-American War, what it is, as I study, you may have gotten this from the CV, I study what's known as American political development, which is how the institutions and policies of the United States uh, develop, how they emerge, what are their, but it, so it's really history and the historian's craft, but with more of the political sciences scope and inclination and generalization and concepts that many historians are less comfortable with. So the, um, so I was interested in kind of how this process of national security policy making worked and how did it change from one time to another. And it seemed pretty clear to me that it wasn't, um, there wasn't kind of a incremental steady learning, that there was kind of a, it bounced around and it a lot depended on the president, of course, and his sensibilities on the politics of the time and so forth. But I was thinking, well, one way to get at this process and political science would not be very good at this because this is only a few people involved. And so how do you have run empirical tests? How do you get qualitative or quantitative data, much less rigorous qualitative data about this process? So it seemed to me you could do kind of a comparison of national security uh, advisors and their foreign policies and administrations. Now that had been done, and that seemed to me as a kind of as an outsider in here in Austin, that didn't seem to be my um, factor advantage to pursue that. And so I thought, well, maybe a way to do this would be through a person. And I'd been aware of Scowcroft since, again, from childhood when he was working with Nixon and Ford. And I thought, well, maybe here's a way that I can use a lens on this process and the fact that he worked for about six different presidential administrations from Nixon and Ford. And he didn't work with Carter, but he worked, I said about the outside as a consultant to Reagan. He worked with Bush, of course. He worked a little bit, not more, a little bit, a, a good bit with the uh, Bush 43, and then he actually helped Obama and the Obama administration. 
So, so here's a guy who's involved in many administrations. I thought, well, he would give me, his career would allow me insight on various administrations and foreign policy making processes, and also uh, give me the range of American history that would allow me to look at this, this long arc of foreign policy from uh, the last third of the Cold War until the war on terror. And it's interesting when you talk about General Scowcroft, he is involved in so many different administrations. It sounds like, you know, he should be a rock star and he just kind of has this very quiet personality. I think he only started writing his own biography, I think in his 80s, right? I think he hasn't produced a lot of personal material. So what's it like researching someone whose perhaps most famous quality is that he has avoided the limelight? Well, it's kind of it's kind of tough because if as you might imagine, if you're doing a biography of uh, Kissinger or Brzezinski, who just are writing all the time, then uh, there's a there's a track record, um, and you can pull that up. And the same with a lot of people. Baker, you mentioned uh, Baker prior to this. I mean, he'd written an, an autobiography. He'd written this sort of analysis of foreign policies. Written other things. Uh, now, Scowcroft had written a lot. He'd written some academic papers. He'd written a lot of memos and policy papers. He'd been um, he'd been the head of numerous presidential commissions, and so he played a role in those texts. But um, generally, he was very guarded. He was very uh, reserved, very protective of his friends and, and himself. And so it was a little bit tough. Now, what made this a little bit easier was the fact that he was just starting on his memoirs when I started, and I was kind of worried, crikey, he's going to scoop me in or show that I've got it all wrong. <laughs> And so uh, I was a little bit worried about that, but then after a few years, he kind of gave that up. And what it, I think what it came down to, and this is a roundabout answer to your question, one of the things about his career, as you probably appreciate, is he loved doing lots of things and a lot, having lots of balls in the air and lots of different sides of his personality, whether it's business, whether it's um, education, whether it's um, intelligence work, whether it's you know, foreign policy or nuclear weapons, lots of things appealed to him. He, he could contribute in lots of ways. And he said that working on his dissertation and writing his memoirs would be something like the most painful thing he could imagine, spending all that time on just one thing. And so I think that was where I was a little bit lucky as I came to at the right time. And it was actually a, it was a sort of a, a, a question I had with myself and with other people should I wait till after he passes? In that sense, I'll be able to, people could go on the record more freely, there'd be more material available and so forth. Well, that's fine if there's a lot of material on this person, but if there's not and they're reticent, then it's important to talk to them. And so I was very fortunate to give me about 40 interviews over the course of about four, you know, about five years. And so I met on average about once a month, mostly by phone, some in person. And this allowed me then, despite his reticence, to, because he was, I mean, that's funny, the first interview he had on me was as much him checking out me and seeing if I was qualified than me uh, asking about his early life and kind of his career in general. Anyway, so he obviously had agreed to this and signed off. And then between talking to him and and he would then recommend other people I talked to, uh, I would approach them and, and they would agree to talk to me, which is just, you know, why would they agree to, meet with some scholar in Central Texas. I mean, it's one thing if I were somebody else, a you know, Washington insider or someone in a long time, but I was a comparative unknown. And so in this sense, uh, uh, but he obviously he'd said the right things because I, I got tremendous access to people. So anyway, with this access to people and then with records from the, um, the Ford, the Nixon, the Reagan, and especially the Bush libraries, and I was able to kind of to get a sense of what the history was, what was going on, what the issues and decisions he faced were. And so even though he didn't say very much, I could come back to him and say, or first inform myself and say, okay, these are the questions I need help with, or these are the inconsistencies, or here's where you've been criticized. Uh, what do you say about this? And so by coming back a second time and a third time, I was eventually able to get a fuller picture of what's going on. I mean, I will say that months or even years went by uh, and I said, how am I going to figure this out? And how am I going to pull this stuff together? Because so much would remain classified in these presidential libraries. And also because 
a lot of areas I knew nothing about. I mean, I didn't know what was going on in Afghanistan. I didn't know what was going on in Panama. I didn't know very little about China and what was going on in Tiananmen Square. I mean, I read headlines and occasionally I'd read stories, but a lot of areas I kind of had to parachute in and then figure out what was his role and what difference did he make. And so anyway, it was, it was uh, kind of a challenge, but it was also, it was also kind of a lot of fun, actually, because I got to figure things out. And, and I think as an outsider, this gave me advantage because I didn't have any uh, irons in the fire, I didn't have any stakes with the kind of perceived wisdom and enough stuff was out there then on the public record or by scholars or by journalists or that I could get through these interviews and I kind of, kind of piece things together and triangulate and kind of figure out what was happening and what his role was. So I do want to get into the actual foreign policy decisions that um, he faced, but I do want to um, circle back to you said he came to this just sort of an interest in the National Security Council itself. What was the National Security Advisor? What was that position like before uh, Scowcroft? And how do you think he changed it? Or what sort of uniqueness did he bring to that? Or anti-Kissingerness is how I view it. What did he bring to that role? Well, you know, Kissinger was one of his mentors, and they had a lot of disagreements, but they were also very, very good friends and remained friends until the last. Having said that, I think one of the things that a chief contribution of Scowcroft was his attention to the process about how you deal with and work with other principals, that is other agency heads, other department secretaries, whether it's defense, whether it's commerce, whether it's treasury, whether it's um, AID, whether it's uh, you know ambassador to the UN, you name it. And so one of the things that Kissinger did is that he and Nixon wanted to concentrate power in the White House. And so they kind of squeezed out the Secretary of State until Kissinger was appointed Secretary of State. They, they uh, squeezed out uh, Melvin Laird in the Department of Defense. They were kind of very high-handed about it all. Now that's, that can work, but when you're dealing with something as difficult as, for example, the Vietnam War or the Cold War, then you really need as many hands as you can get. And by squeezing people out, you of course breed ill will and you breed resentment. And so one of the things that uh, Scowcroft was, was terrific at was getting a, what we'd call other people's buy-ins. So he would talk to people and persuade them, look, I'm this is a patriot, I care about the presidency, I care about these institutions. And he didn't have to say this, just he would do this through his actions and through what he'd done throughout his career. But he's able to get people to trust him. And then between that and um, I think we're really as fundamental respect for other people is able to get people to work with him. And that when they work with him, he also, this also meant they were establishing a regular process, whether it's the deputies, whether it's the principals themselves, whether it's ad hoc groups within the National Security Council and bring them together. So the National Security Council, National Security Advisor had really been kind of this odd part of the National Security Act in 1947 that was, uh, I mean, Andrew Goodpaster was an, an effective national security advisor, but the term wasn't really called that. Um, and a guy named Cutler, who actually was national security advisor proper. You have uh, McGeorge Bundy was national security advisor. Walt Rostow, of course, was here at the LBJ School as national security advisor. But those people were seen as not quite as, um, as integrating. The way I think of it as a, the national security advisor and the national security process it's like you have a chief of staff for the international, for the U.S. and the world. And so this can mean press relations. It can mean working with Congress. It can mean a sort of commerce and trade. But especially it means military affairs, intelligence, diplomacy, strategic forces, and so forth. And so he was able then to, to coordinate these things. And between his personality and these processes he was put up, he was able to do this. And he did this with... A relatively small staff of about 60 people. Now, some of these are on loan that is seconded from other agencies. And since then, it's actually shrunk recently under O'Brien and before that, Bolton. But um, before that, it had gone up to a couple hundred under, uh, under George W. Bush and uh, President Obama. And so it had gotten larger. And he actually believed in a fairly lean structure because you don't need to repeat the expertise and the research that the Defense Department is doing, that the health services are doing, that's going on in the State Department or going on elsewhere. Rather, what you need to do is have experts who can pull this information together, synthesize it, and create policy reports or policy recommendations 
that deal with it. And so I think that's kind of this, this inter, interagency process and this kind of small, and unlike the Reagan administration, small non-operational um, uh, staff that can uh, advise the president. Now, I should say one more thing is that a lot depends on that relationship with the president. And this is where uh, Kissinger had a special relationship. I mentioned Eugene Bundy and also uh, President Kennedy, but that was different than, um, than say under some of Obama's or Clinton's or others who had maybe didn't have those relationships with the, with the president. And so that, of course things necessarily suffer in those cases. So what do you see as the key attribute of a national security advisor? It sounds like an intensely bureaucratic position in which you have to be managing all these different parts of the government. And you also have to be likable enough that the president listens to you and you have to be knowledgeable enough to be able to react to any crisis around the world. Is this job, is this job possible is basically my larger question. I don't see how any one person could possibly be responsible for all these uh, shifting responsibilities. Well, the president's responsible, of course, right? So it goes to the president. Right, right. That's, that sounds um, harder, you're right. And which, of course, is an impossible job. Uh, no, I think what's this is the importance of teamwork. And so he was working with Bob Gates, who people called, you know, basically his, his, other, his twin because they were, so, um, they were so close. And he had very good staff, by and large. He also had very good relationships with Dick Cheney and Colin Powell and... Um, James Baker and Lawrence Eagleburger, who was Undersecretary of State, was very close to the president himself. He was able to work with John Sununu, the chief of staff. And even before that, during the transition period, after Bush defeated uh, Dukakis in the transition period, he and, and Bush would spend long walks in Camp David figuring out how they were going to assemble their staff, who they wanted, who would work well together. And so this is important of teamwork, just like an athletic team or or a, you know, a good company is you want different talents, you want people to be able to mesh and get along with each other, at least at some sort of minimal level. And I think they're very careful about this. And so this is why it's not an impossible job. If you can get your own deputies, your own staff, work with other people, establish the, not only the relationships with the principals, but also their deputies, be able to then to have people who are really, really good working with the press or the media, or who deal with um, relationships with the, with the political party, members of Congress. And so, yes, but it's a lot of stuff to orchestrate. And it's certainly easy to see why it could go amiss. I mean, even with all those things right, there are things that the, you know, you look back and say, well, the administration got wrong. This is the Bush administration got wrong. So it doesn't guarantee anything, but of course, it's, these are things that are, are probabilities. And so you have a better chance of a fortunate result if you're able to um, have that teamwork and get people kind of agreed with the president and what he wants to accomplish. Moving into sort of the actual decisions uh, Scott Kraft was involved in, I mean, he saw the fall of Saigon, he saw German reunification, the fall of the Soviet Union. I felt like in the book, you spent quite a bit of time on, I hope I pronounced this right, the Mayaguez crisis. Yeah, so I was wondering if you could speak to that, because you seem to really paint this as something that informed his decision-making process and just sort of his theoretical view of the world. No, I think that's a very observant of you, just for the listeners. Tom gave me a set of questions, and one was, what events do you find most critical in illustrating Skokrop's impact? And the first thing I thought of as kind of having a significant impact was the Mayaguez incident. <laughs> so why do I say this? Because the Mayaguez incident played a direct role in leading to the 1986. The Mayaguez happened just at the close of the Vietnam War. So this is 1975, a couple of weeks after the evacuation of Saigon. And it directly led to the Goldwater-Nichols Act which was basically what it did was to concentrate military authority, promote integration and collaboration among the armed services to make joint operations more successful. Because what the Mayaguez incident showed is that not that there wasn't teamwork and people who were working really hard and faithfully in the White House, but that there was inter-service rivalry, that they were mixing equipment, that they weren't coordinating, that they weren't even thinking about right suggestions. So Scowcroft, for example, observed that that um, planes could arrive in advance of the nuclear aircraft carrier Coral Sea. So they didn't have to wait till the ship was right nearby to get those airplanes, have to have them at their disposal. Right, right. And they also, there was some problems about the timing, problems with uh, 
the kind of helicopters they were using. And so anyway, that they realized that they needed to reform the military and to have, and so this led, led part of the Goldwater-Nichols Act, which many members of Congress, people like, for example, Defense Secretary Casper uh, Weinberger, other prominent um, folks opposed. And what it did is it created uh, CENTCOM, SOUTHCOM, these different regional commanders who then would control the uh, if there was going to be operations in their area. So what it meant is this authority, the uh, uh, um, uh, training throughout the military, inter-service training, exposure. And so basically to make a joint operations much more successful because remember between these two things, that is the Mayaguez and the 1986 Goldwater-Nichols Act, you have the botched Iranian um, hostage rescue mission uh, under um, President Carter, and also the Grenada invasion, which was you know, viewed as a success, but you have the Marine Corps controlling one half the island, the army, the other half the island. At one point, a, a serviceman has to go on a naval ship and make a call with his credit card to get through to another commander because the, 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 the communications are so uh, siloed. And so anyway, this is, that was just an example, but the point is that there was a lot of inter-service rivalry and this was detrimental. And they found out with Mayaguez that the Defense Department wasn't coordinating and was listening and things were just not working. So even though this was viewed as success, despite the numbers of deaths from um, the Marine deaths, that they realized that there were these larger lessons to take. And um, now that's kind of, you say, well, this is not like world peace. It's not the end of nuclear warfare, but still in terms of the effectiveness of national security policy, it's, it, it's right up there. Because ideally, right, you can do things very discreetly, very uh, succinctly. And so that's where I, diplomacy comes first. Do things maybe with economic sanctions or with UN resolutions, if you can be, sometimes with covert actions maybe with joint operations, but sort of out-and-out warfare is the absolute last resort. So the more, you know, the, the, the lowest the level that you can have the conflict, the better. And I think effective joint forces, you know, allow for that given the necessity. And that's interesting you mentioned that because I think of his split with the second Bush administration was based on his interest to consolidate uh, the intelligence community. So that might just kind of be, I don't know, his calling card, I guess. I don't know. I, I'm curious, though, because you mentioned uh, covert action, and Scowcroft seemed uh, very supportive of covert action, that there were things that need to be hidden from the American public. I, I was hoping you can unpack that a little bit, because reading that now, that almost seems like it doesn't age well, like as someone with a high up bureaucratic position openly saying that we need to be able to carry out covert actions. When did that kind of shift where the public is, uh, I think now much more against the CIA carrying out the actions that were so common in the you know, 70s and 80s? I think certainly the, the idea that there's, uh, I mean, you have really covert action that took out Osama bin Laden. You have covert right. action that has now, I guess, with some of the stuff with drones that is taking out uh, folks. And so this is, uh, it still goes on. I think there's a lag between when it goes on and what we know about it. So and I think the media are typically are, are persuadable to keep things under wraps mm -hmm. for a while unless they're worried about the big scoops or unless there's uh, collateral damage. And so I think, I think it probably goes on more than we imagine. Uh, but I think you're right. The optics have changed and it's seen as less tolerable. What he wanted to do, and I think fundamental values of Scowcross were protecting Americans' blood and treasure. So what I mean by that, it means costing the taxpayer and the uh, fisc as little as possible or you know, moderating the expenses, but also protecting American lives, especially on uh, civilians, but also military lives. And so to do that, sometimes if there were enemies that, were, that you couldn't work through with diplomacy or other ways, and sometimes it may be necessary. I mean, just like occasionally there'll be heinous crimes and some states decide, well, the death penalty, there's really is no um, redemption for what has happened. And you, one could argue that if there are certain organizations or certain people where that could be considered. I mean, what, what strikes me about contemporary terrorism is how nihilistic it is and how little there is of the Think of Martin Luther King or of Gandhi and of kind of and of a public organization and of of, of nonviolent protests and say where are those intermarry 
intermediary stages of political action before you go to uh, assassination or terrorism. And you can, there's, a, there's a whole range of activities people will do. Obviously, you may not have the vote, but there are other things you do and that other people outside can do. And so, so having said that, ideally, it's kind of one of a range of, of tools that governments have that is uh, used very sparingly, but it may be they say, well, okay, this is, and this is where you need the intelligence and you need to have the, as in military intelligence or, or you know, di diplomatic intelligence and the judgment and the experience to say, well, this is appropriate now. And ideally that would be very few and far between. We have that need, but, you know, we know that the Soviets are not Soviets, but the Russians are dealing with American elections. Well, Americans, as you know, did that during the Cold War in, <laughs> in Italy and Greece, a lot of places around the world where we got involved in other elections. And you say, well, this matters because we care about what's going to happen in, in France or in Europe or elsewhere. And what's the, and so there's, to some extent, you can see those things as being plausible. But I, again, you kind of want to have that as, as, as sparing as possible. So moving on to less covert events, I, I mentioned German reunification and the fall of the Soviet Union. Uh, both were under Scowcroft's stead as national security advisor. My big question is just sort of the legacy. He's sort of inseparable from H.W. Uh, Bush. And at the time, we have this like incredible foreign policy successes on top of the Gulf War, but it's also just a presidency that totally failed to capture uh, the domestic imagination. Why do you think it was so contemporarily unpopular? And I think today, it, pop culture-wise, um, it's still sort of a derided presidency. Yeah, that's a good question. And I think there are a few things that are going on here. One is that Bush and Scowcroft and Baker and I think others were very respectful of foreign leaders. And they believed in kind of this personal diplomacy, whether it's with Deng Xiaoping, whether it's with uh, Gorbachev, whether it's with uh, Mag Margaret Thatcher or, or Francois Mitterrand or whoever it is, they believed, in fact, many times that they would, Bush would just pick up the phone and call, you know, the president of Costa Rica or the, or um, Mubarak in Egypt. And so they believed in this personal diplomacy. So they realized the importance of, the, of those things and they were very respectful. And so that Bush and, and Scowcroft as well, they didn't want to dance on the wall because they're worried about having Gorbachev lose face. They're worrying about uh, possibly coup and the right wing in Russia, the industrialists, and the more hardline military folks. And so they're very careful about that and realized it wasn't over with. But the result was, and here's the second thing, is as uh, Maureen Down said, they didn't give Americans a song to sing. Mm -hmm. right? And Reagan did this, right? These clear, simple messages. Well, if you're and all sophisticated in foreign policy, you realize you're just dealing with a, these huge ranges of gray and there's almost nothing that's black and white. And so I think they were very attuned to that. Now the balance of course is figuring out well, where can you present things in a simple black and white way? I mean, you think of Roosevelt saying the Lend-Lease program, well, if your neighbor has a his house on fire, then you get your hose and you lend them their hose, then they can put out the fire, right? This, this everyday metaphor. So they needed to figure out what are the everyday metaphors they could use. So they tried a Europe whole, whole and free. They tried it, a, you know, a, the new world order. And these, right. none, none of these things really caught on, but they weren't really able to have that kind of common touch. And so that's kind of a second ingredient of this is, is that one respecting foreign leaders and not wanting to make the evil empire. That was you know, far away from how they wanted to present the world. Another is, um, is you know, is, is this lack of kind of you know, sort of popular, because they, I mean, to be blunt, I mean, here is Bush, Phi Beta Kappa at Yale, the Scowcroft is, you know, incredibly elite from this very uh, well-established family, and they weren't, they weren't everyday folks, and they weren't, um, and of course, government maybe not doesn't really may not always want everyday folks. You want people who have exceptional capability and experience and intelligence. Having said that, it's a democracy, and you need to be able to have a kind of a mix. We talked about a team. You need, need to be able to do that. So the third thing is, besides this lack of a common touch, is that I think after 
the two terms of the Reagan administration, the Iran-Contra scandal, and then you have Bush being elected, I think people were kind of just tired of the of the Republicans in office. And there's also, I think, amount of fatigue. I mean, I was in, in school at the time of the end of the Cold War, and the whole thing went by so quickly. And if you're dealing with other things um, and having a regular life, you know, it's just, was, it's just incredible how quickly it, it came. And most people didn't quite capture that. I don't think they did a very good job. I think the press was a little bit hostile. I remember at the time I was opposed to the, um, the first Gulf War and you know, kind of opposed to much of the Bush administration, the Bush 41 administration. So I think there was kind of a popular, um, and remember both houses of Congress were, uh, were, were, were controlled by the Democrats. And so I think there was kind of the political climate was against him. And I think there was kind of this fatigue of foreign policy. Then you have now Yugoslavia, there's China and Tiananmen Square, and it's attacked on these fronts. And so it was kind of a lot of stuff going on. They certainly didn't bat a thousand. I don't mean to say that, but no. what they did hit, they hit pretty well. Uh, no, they did. Absolutely. And it is funny looking uh, back at um, just sort of the anecdotal responses to uh, Reagan's tear down this wall. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. It's only people hated that a lot in strategic circles, saying this is a ridiculous line. Right. And Scowcroft himself, he was like, this is offensive. You can't tell a foreign leader what to do. And now he's never going to do it because it's going to make it sound like you made him. And yet that is the tagline of the Cold War for Americans. Right. And the thing is, is that when Reagan left office, you still have the forces in, in, in Europe. You still have the Soviet support for Cuba and Central America and other parts of the world. You still have the uh, global war against capitalism. None of the things, you still have the nuclear forces intact. So nothing actually had changed. It's just you have Gorbachev saying all the right things, and they didn't know how seriously to take him. And in fact, much of the Russian establishment or Soviet establishment, of course, was uh, was was leery of him, if not host- hostile to him. And so they were um, kind of understandably very cautious. And that's why I think the the credit to the end of the Cold War has to go with the actual uh, nuts and bolts of where, when I mean, the Cold War, the origin of the Cold War, of course, is in Europe and the split of Europe and this division of Germany. And that didn't happen until, um, until the Bush administration. You also have the Cold War as being, of course, the global war against capitalism and the revolution of the workers. Well, the Soviet Union doesn't renounce that until uh, until the 90s. You also have the Soviet support for communist movements worldwide. Well, that doesn't stop until the Bush administration. You also have, one of the things about the Cold War is that the National Security Council, the UN, was supposed to be kind of a way of monitoring the global security uh, situation, but it never worked because the US and the Soviets could always veto each other's policies. One exception is when Korea and the Soviets were absent from that vote. So the UN agrees to go help with the United States and Korea. Well, it never worked. But finally, with not until the Iraq war, do you have 12 UN re- resolutions supporting the eviction of Iraqi forces from Kuwait. And not until then do you have the actual Soviet Union and the United States cooperating on joint foreign policy and agreed. So when you think about all the things that make up the Cold War, it's really not until the Bush administration that you actually see the material changes in what's going on. And so this is all to say this sort of talk is cheap. And you can imagine that had a coup happened earlier in the Soviet Union, and given especially what's happened afterwards, it could be easy to imagine that, that it just would have slid back. We wouldn't have had the end of the Cold War. It, 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 you spoke about this earlier, but it is remarkable just reading about how much patience they had with the fall of the Cold War or the fall of the Soviet Union. They're like, if we tip this over, we can destroy this part of the world. And just looking at how foreign policy is discussed now and people talking about initiating a new Cold War with China, that soft hand just seems to be totally absent. That's another podcast. So you don't have to get yeah. into that. But uh, it's it's just shocking to read that sort of restraint. I mean, one of the things that Scowcroft did, and you know, you can say this is in some ways, um, I don't want to say a defect, but one attribute is, is that he was always aware of what could be worse or how things could go wrong. And one of the things with the Soviet Union, they were very worried about the, the social republics attacking each other or trying to gain space. And so just having those kind of stable 
in wondering about the nuclear weapons that were spread throughout them. And so consolidating the control of the nuclear weapons and making sure there wasn't this internecine warfare in the former Soviet Union, not to mention the East Bloc, was a huge concern of them and of theirs. And so this is, um, there are a lot of things that they were very worried about. That that's why they had to be you know, very delicate and, as you say, patient as this proceeded. Gorbachev was, in a way, doing what we thought was our work for us, because while we didn't really think Gorbachev was a Democrat, uh, he was trying to make the Soviet Union more efficient by going after corruption, uh, absenteeism, drunkenness, and also the repressive aspects of the system which stifled productivity. So he was trying to make the system more efficient. And, and we thought that was good because in the process of doing it, he was undermining what kept it together. So I could spend probably another hour or so on this part, but let's, uh, I do want to jump up to the Iraq war or, you know, the 2003 Iraq war. How radical was Scowcroft, him coming out against the Bush administration? And actually, I want to read a passage from your book. I've never done this on the show. I think it's a very hacky thing to do. But how he uh, expects Iraq to unfold is just remarkably prescient, where he says, he predicted that if the United States went in, it would turn the Middle East into a cauldron. Saddam Hussein was not a man who will risk everything on the roll of a dice, consistent with the fact that during the Gulf War, he didn't do everything he could have done. First of all, how do you think Scowcroft was able to be so prescient? And second, um, how was this received in Republican and national security circles? Well, it was very, uh, very hard for him. In fact, it was uh, a moment where I think he was um, kind of ostracized and made a persona non grata with the Bush administration. And um, one of the things that's well, quite striking is that Bob Gates, and especially Condoleezza Rice, uh, Stephen Hadley were all protégés of his. And here he is now, and Bush, um, 43, was the son of his best friend, former President Bush. And he'd, um, he'd gone on the air a week before. He'd uh, actually written uh, some other op-eds. Uh, and he, so he'd said things about this because he tried to do it informally to to say, look, this is bad news to attack Iraq. And we, you know, this seems to be, we don't have good evidence of WMD, weapons of mass destruction. And so this doesn't seem to be right. He is not an ally of Al-Qaeda. He is not a radical force. In fact, he wants to consolidate and protect his own government. So why are we doing this? This is not really attacking the uh, radical Islamic terrorism. And so he tries to do talk to the uh, folks administration, but they don't want to talk to him. And so, and he goes public. Nothing happens. And so finally, and you know, I'm sure you you, you saw this in the book. So finally, he realizes, well, I. So he goes on the air, and he says actually the things that come out in this Wall Street Journal um, op-ed piece, which is headlined "Don't Attack Saddam," and um, and they don't react when he when he goes on the air with this. And so finally, uh, his um, uh, one of his staff members and colleagues says. Look, why don't won't you won't you put this in print? Uh, and so he says, okay. And so they refashion his comments and talking about the deleterious effects of what going to war against attacking Saddam Hussein and Iraq will do. And uh, you know he runs it. And then, as one student of this moment says, Condoleezza Rice took him to the woodshed. She just you know you know balls him out. So why why are you going this? Why are you going public? He's um, uh, between the folks in the administration and their surrogates in the party and in other offices around the country, they attack him. He's he's kind of ridiculed by some. I was looking at letters to the Wall Street Journal um, after this and what they say. And so he comes into immense amount of criticism. And why is he able to do this? I think because of his knowledge of world history and his knowledge and the fact that he'd had this, he'd, the first National Security Advisor in history to previously have held the job. So he knew what it was about. He'd, he'd studied economics, international law. He knew international relations and you know, warfare. We talked about joint operations, nuclear strategy. He had this incredible knowledge base to build on and he could just see, 
well, this is how it's going to go because I know how these pieces fit together reasonably, you know, reasonably well. And because the administration wasn't listening, uh, he felt, well, I I owe this to the presidency, to the government, to the American people to at least do what I can to say that this is a bad idea. And so he did, and he paid an immense price. And one of the things that, uh, you know, how I start the book, as you as you probably recall, is and one of the things that's uh, stunning is that after that, he still, in a couple of years, begins to work with the administration again and dealing with its reelection and working with Condoleezza Rice, who's now Secretary of State, and Bob Gates, who's now Secretary of um, Defense, and actually working with them, trying to and he supports the surge in 2007. And so he kind of is, is incredibly able to throw out his pride, throw out rejection, and just say, look, here's a new day, here are the new issues, so here are new allies, and here's what we need to do now. Just, so just taking things as they are. And so I think it was this ability to let bygones be bygones at the same time to think for himself and say, look, I don't care if the press is all into this. I don't care if the military and political establishment in Washington's for this. Here's here's how things look. This is, doesn't seem like a really good idea, so I'll, I'll go public with it. So now I give him really immense credit for that because it, it came at a great personal sacrifice. And um, you know, of course, later on he has the last laugh. But in the meantime, you have what a trillion plus dollars spent and hundreds yeah. of thousands of lives between U.S. and Iraqi forces, civilians, not to mention contractors and others. And so you know, it's it, it's hardly a laughing matter. He does, however, seem to have this this Teflon personality where I realized this where, you know, he crossed Dick Cheney and 10 years later, Dick Cheney still had very nice things to say about him, which really doesn't seem to be his personality unless you're dealing with someone like Scowcroft. Yeah, no, I think it's it's stunning. And I think they all everybody respects him. I mean, I had a long talk with Elliot Abrams, who's, a, you know, this hawk from the Reagan administration. And he was very, you know, he said Republicans at the time didn't realize he put the value of the country ahead of that of the Republican Party or the current administration. And um, so he's, no, and he, he, no, people have immense respect for him. And because of his ability to, because he was humble, he didn't, wasn't about his own advancement. It was really about the good of the presidency in the United States and, and Americans' larger interests. I have chosen as my national security advisor, Brent Scowcroft. Here's this guy who's fingerprints all over everything, but who doesn't want to be in the public eye. He understands the White House. Brent Scowcroft was probably the president's favorite staff member. He understands the military, the State Department, the way the Hill works, and the intelligence community as well. I have an announcement to make first. In the tradition of the Atlantic Council, you should start eating now. I mean, it is unfortunate that we're having this conversation a few weeks after he died, but that was just kind of his personality, where he's someone who kind of blend in. You don't realize the effects he had until you're really looking back at things. Um, and I, I do ask this question a lot for when we're studying specific figures, but what sort of lessons do you think young policymakers um, can glean from General Scowcroft? I think there are a few things that occur to me. Um, one is the amount of education he invested in West Point, but he doesn't get in at first because he fails this math test. And so he has to go to this prep school for a year. So that's kind of humiliating. And so he does that. And then he's uh, at Columbia, gets a master's and PhD. He does intelligence and language training at Georgetown and at the Navy Yard in Washington. He does the Army Industrial College, the National War College. And then of course he taught at West Point and at the new Air Force Academy. So we had this immense uh, a base of learning, some of it by institutions, a lot of it, of course, he learned on his own by reading and, and you know, and by listening and being in the thick of things. He had to learn things as part of a decision maker. So that's one thing, as I think, is is education and broad education, right? Not only in one area. I mean, I, I talked to some people who knew all about U.S.-Soviet nuclear weapons, but they knew nothing about the economics involved. They knew nothing about human rights issues involved. And he was able to know a sort of a breadth of things. And so I think this is this is the importance of a broad um, liberal arts uh, training and broad knowledge of, again, world history and economic policy and, you know, bureaucratic operations and so forth. So that's one thing is education and broad education, but also in depth in the different areas, which is you know, rare, but uh, but I think 
worthy of pursuit. A second I would say is kind of humility. I mean, I remember when I was 21, I knew everything and it's all gone downhill from there. <laughs> and, you know, I think the more we know, you realize the more you don't know. And I think he was able to study under this guy, General Yudkin, who is the mastermind behind the PSYOPs, which is the single integrated operations plan for nuclear forces and a real, real defense intellectual. He worked with Kissinger. And it's not that he agreed with these folks all the time. In fact, he and Kissinger once had you know, had some knockdown drag out fights, but he was able to um, appreciate the good things that they had to offer, appreciate uh, Kissinger's brilliance, appreciate Yudkin's knowledge of the bureaucracy and about how the larger issues that the Air Force faced and so forth. So I think it's this humility, which then in turn means the ability to learn from other people and say, okay, I might disagree with this person, but let me figure out why they think that, right? Why do they think that and what informs them? And then later on, you can talk to them and figure out, well, what would I learn from this? Or maybe what do I not take from this? A third thing is emotional intelligence. And this is, this sounds like, well, you have it or you don't. Well, it's not really. It's, I think it's just awareness of other people, about being considerate, about realizing that other people have pride. So you don't show them up. You're kind in public. You don't disagree and, you know, publicly with people, or if you do so, you want to do so sort of mildly and politely. And uh, so Kissinger, for example, you know, was, wanted people to confront him, but didn't want to be, you know, had immense pride. And so if if Skokoff disagreed with him, um, he'd say, well, how about if I write a memo on this? And so he'd write a memo and then he'd actually end up persuading Kissinger or else they'd talk about it private one-on-one. -on -one. And the other thing I'd say, part of emotional intelligence is, which I just touched on was, you don't need to make permanent enemies. I mean, you might disagree with people or think, someone's a jerk, but you don't know what their other attributes are. And they may have hidden talents or allies, or they may, have, may be able to grow in certain ways. You don't know their ceilings or their, you know, where, what their trajectories are. So as I said, there's, for another day, if the people you need to work with, there are new issues and new coalitions form. And so I think this is part of emotional intelligence broadly understood is that, yes, people are flawed and they have limits and some people might really grate on you. And you can avoid them, but it doesn't mean you have to, you know, I mean, he never badmouthed anybody, even people he didn't really care for at all, like um, Rumsfeld, he really wouldn't say anything directly against him. Um, so he was, he was very, you know, very, I don't think he was about not making enemies, it's just, there's no no leverage in it, like why bother? If anyone pays attention, they know that they, they're not, not on the same page. And then finally, which I touched on with the Iraq war um, memorandum or op-ed is that thinking for yourself and, and then being tough. I mean, one of the things that people don't, maybe don't appreciate about Scowcroft is how tough he was and how willful. I mean, here's a guy who, who was a sprinter in, in, uh, in, in high school and was an excellent, you know, would beat these people decades younger than them climbing up the, these peaks outside Aspen for the Aspen strategy group meetings. Um, but very, very tough and and strong-willed. But at the same time, I mentioned emotional intelligence, but he could do so calmly and non-confrontationally. And so you kind of tough, think for yourself, and if necessary, you go public and write the op-ed or, or you do something else. But try to do, be non-confrontational, but at the same time, be true to yourself and your larger values for which you believe in. And I think uh, those, that being able to think for yourself and so often... We kind of want to go along or or the wind seems to be overwhelmingly from one direction and you may have some doubts but you say well this probably be the right thing and it's all too easy to go along with everybody else rather than to say hey wait a minute what about this or shouldn't we and but of course to do that successfully then you need to be credible which means you know got to know your stuff and got to have a track record of, of achievement So we're approaching the end of our time, and I just want to end with uh, maybe a bit on what you're working on now. It doesn't sound like you're dusting off a McMaster or Bolton or Brian uh, biography anytime soon, but I'd love to hear about your next project. Well, I'm in the middle of, uh, in fact, I'm on leave this fall to work on a book on the white poor, the people who come to America, who come to American colonies in the early United States, or you know, late uh, 18th, early 19th century, who came over as indentured servants and convicts. Uh, who are unfree for their period of service. <laughs> I've never heard that this before. This hasn't been included in studies of the founding and in political science. And so 
but I'm, but the trouble is most of these folks were literate. And so there's very little paper trail. And so it's, there's a lot of kind of um, looked at a bunch of archival sources and trying to put together and explain about this kind of part of America, which is very different from uh, kind of the Puritan moralist and the and education. It's the people who come overwhelmingly to the Chesapeake Bay area to work on tobacco plantations because the immense amount of work involved in tobacco and more generally because the labor shortage of colonial America. And so you have all these folks who are leaving Scotland and England, Wales and Ireland, North and South, of course, it's the same at the time, because of the enclosure movements and because of poverty and population rates. And so a lot of these folks, there's a lot of people who are indigent, who are impoverished, who get into petty crimes. And there's this huge demand in the colonies in early United States because of this labor shortage. And there's a lot of British investors who have interests in seeing these these colonies thrive. And so there are these policies, some official, some just happen through the market system to encourage folks to come over. Over half of the whites who that Europeans who emigrate to America, to the American colonies, British North America and the early United States come over as unfree. They'll come over who have to uh, serve typically three to five years before they can then possibly acquire property, land, and become members of society. But most of them don't. Most of them don't acquire property. Most of them stay as uh, become tenant farmers, or they re-indenture themselves. They go off into the West or into the foothills or mountains of the Appalachians or beyond. And so it's the story of the United States that's not slavery. It's not the New England of, of de Tocqueville and others or of um, Samuel Huntington, but it's this, this lower class of whites that um, I'm studying and studying their kind of effects on the Constitution founding moment and American political culture. That sounds terrific and definitely very timely. But uh, Dr. Sparrow, thank you so much for coming out. This is a great conversation and uh, good luck this fall. Tom, thanks for having me and thanks for your questions. And uh, it's good to be on Slavic Connection. Thank you for listening. The title of Dr. Sparrow's book, again, is The Strategist. It is on Brent Scowcroft. It is available wherever books are sold. And I hope you pick it up. Thank you for listening. Like, subscribe. Send me a threatening mail. I'll give you my address, whatever you like, but just keep listening. Thanks. The views expressed on this episode do not necessarily reflect those of the show or the University of Texas. Please visit SlavXRadio.com for more information. Thank you for listening. The Slavic Connection is produced by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Thank you. That was a great soundbite. That wasn't even asked for. That was excellent.